You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. In 2013, uh, a a woman named Sabine Moreau, a 67-year-old Belgian woman, was driving to pick up her friend in Belgium in Brussels. That's where her friend was. It was 90 miles away from her house. But because of her faulty GPS, she ended up driving nearly 1,000 miles in the wrong direction. She ended up in Croatia. And so the the journey took her across five international borders. She stopped several times to get gas and to even nap. Uh, And she persisted all the way uh, to Zagreb, which is the capital of Croatia. And so after a few days, her son called the authorities. He didn't know where his mom was. And so they followed the trail of her credit card to find out where she was. And the media got wind of it. And she said to a reporter, she said this, I was distracted. So I kept going. I saw all kinds of signs, first in French, then in German, and then finally in Croatian. But I continued to drive because I was distracted. When I passed Zagreb, I told myself I should turn around. Now, I am sure that there are some embarrassing stories of people in here who went the wrong direction and were convinced they were in the right direction. But this is a true story, and it's unfathomable to us that somebody would ignore all of the signs around them that would compel to them directly that you are headed in the wrong direction. It makes no sense to us at all. Like She had multiple opportunities, even different languages that were coming into her face, telling her that she was going the wrong way, but she was distracted and her distraction became delusion. And so probably in my head, she had to at multiple instances, right? Had to say something like, okay, this next exit, right? That, then that'll get me on track. That when I get here, that, then I'll find something familiar. She was thinking that what she was looking for was down the road. And so as we conclude Hosea, uh, in a sense, this is Israel. This is God's people whom were created with uh, the, the express purpose of having one orientation, fully directed to God himself. Yet they have gone the other direction. And along the way, they've had multiple, multiple opportunities to see the error of their ways, to see their folly, They've been distracted, distracted by their pride, distracted by pleasure, distracted by false promises and wealth. And as a people, they had drifted so far from God that they even forgot that they were lost. They had forgotten their true destination, that they had become so deluded that God's own people began to worship other gods. But as we know, Hosea is more than just a dramatic story of rebellion and folly and restoration. Israel's existence and their waywardness serves a greater purpose for us today. 
The Apostle Paul, who's one of the most famous Christians that we've ever heard of, writes in the book of Corinthians when he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that the true purposes for the examples of Israel and the reason that they're written down. He says in, in, in chapter 10, now these things happened to them, referring to the Israelites as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. And so what Paul is saying is that these things were written down for our benefit, that we might heed them as a warning and actually learn from them. And what Paul means when he says, whom the end of the age has come is is us who walk on this side of the cross, who have experienced and we know the culmination of God's redemptive work in Jesus' death and his resurrection. We ought to study and understand the examples of our ancestors for our own good and benefit. Because the story of Hosea isn't primarily about a people that are wayward, but it's about the default bend of all humanity who share in a propensity to head towards sin, a fallenness amongst creation that actually bends us away from God naturally. We are sinners not by action. We are sinners by condition. We have a natural bend towards selfishness, towards self-consumption, you could say. And what that means is that without divine intervention, we most assuredly will orient ourselves in the wrong direction. Like Sabine Morale, we have a faulty GPS. We have a faulty heart that is flawed. And like Moreau, we have a sense that we're lost, that we can't quite figure out what's going on. God has placed, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, eternity in our hearts, meaning that we know what it means to be eternal beings. We know what eternity is, which makes everything in this earthly living so fleeting, so lacking, and corroding. But we distract ourselves. We distract ourselves in so many different ways that we are unable to say the truth. The truth being that we are lost and hopeless. And as we close Hosea, what we get to study today is probably one of the most substantial chapters in all of scripture because there is a joyful message in this text of homeward turning. God's word here in Hosea is like the beacons of lights that line the runway, that pierce the night sky, revealing the way home for returning airplanes. In Hosea, God calls his people to return. And he describes three powerful postures that serve as navigation. God calls his people to return through repentance and rest and reflecting. But more than just marking the way to return to God, these postures are the means that we sojourners, we adopted sons and daughters of God through grace by faith. These postures are how we live and thrive and flourish in this temporal world until the return of our king and his rule and his reign is in full. And so as we take in Hosea 14 today, let's come to this text with an open heart and an open spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we come to you today, and we are grateful, Father, that you are the great initiator, that, that the reason that we're here, Lord, is that because you have revealed yourself to us. 
And Jesus, we thank you for your redemptive work that we can be forgiven of our sins. And Holy Spirit, we are praising you today for the life that you bring us, the conviction that you bring us, the conviction that you bring us, the growth that you make in our lives. And so, Lord, will you make this text come alive to us? Will you bring gladness and conviction in our hearts where it's necessary? We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful, beautiful name. Amen. Hosea 14, verse 1. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now, what does it mean to return to God? What does it mean to return to the Lord? Well, Hosea has already laid out a definition uh, per se, in this book. In chapter 12, verse 6, Hosea says this, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Returning to God means to be one that is enjoying the presence and the person of God in this, is that we hold fast meaning that we cling tightly to or we lock ourselves in on these two things, God's love and his justice, that they become our all-consuming endeavors, not endeavors in that we're searching for them, but that we already possess them by faith and that we grow in our capacity to hold them, grow more concrete in our understanding of who God is and what he has done and his commands. And when we don't understand And when we struggle, and when harm comes our way, we wait. We wait. And the reason one waits is because they trust the one they're waiting on. That we wait on the Lord, believing that he will return. And with him will come provision. And so we hold fast to God's perfect love and justice as one who waits on God, fully trusting in his goodness, fully trusting in his timing, and his reasoning. But the scripture says we don't arrive there on our own. It says, so you, by the help of your God, return. Hosea is saying that only God can make this happen. Only through God is it possible that you could return. Uh, The context of Hosea 12 is reciting or playing back to us the story of Jacob. It, it, It tells us about this wrestling match that Jacob had with God at a brook called Jebuk. We read of it in Genesis. It tells us that Jacob had come to a place in his life where he knew that the Lord had beaten him. He knew that the Lord had beaten him, and all he could simply do was hang on and plead for his blessing. It is to say this. God returns us when we arrive as humbled and beaten in front of him. Humbled and beaten in front of him, that we know how weak we are. And we know how desperate we are before the Lord. Hosea has revealed this to us in chapter 6. And in verse 1, he says, come, let us return. He's talking to the Israelites. Come, let us return. And he, he describes what God has done to bring them back. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up again. God has broken us to restore us. And if we remember in chapter 2, Hosea is speaking about his adulterous wife, Gomer, who has gone into the arms of another man, of other lovers, who is living a life of prostitution by her own choice. He says of her this, he says, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns 
He says, I'm going to create resistance in her life and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. I'm bringing frustration into her path. So she shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then she shall say, listen to this. What is the reason for the frustration and the resistance? That she might say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Friends, if there is a spot that we bail on Christianity, it is in this. It's like we don't want to hear the hard stuff. Like, we don't want to hear the hard stuff. We, we want to hear that God loves us and that he's got a great plan for us. We don't want to hear that we must be beaten and humbled. We don't want to hear the gospel beg us to come and die to find life. We want somebody to confirm how special and important we are. We want somebody to confirm our rightness, not God's righteousness. So I just say this very humbly. It's in me. I want that too. And it's in you. It's in all of us. And so I say this kindly and gently, that God must break us to remake us. He must. And that sounds harsh and bitter, but it's not. It's not. It's graceful truth because you're not the answer to the problem of your heart. God tears us. He strikes us down. He puts resistance and frustrations into our path, not as divine vengeance, but as an act of divine grace. Why? Because we are headed in the wrong direction. We are on the path of destruction. I'm not talking necessarily about hell. I'm talking about destruction that comes as the wake to others and the world from people who live self-centered life, selfish and focused on themselves. It is to say life is a bit like being in a boat where we have set the course on the river And at the end of that river is a gigantic waterfall that if we weren't so distracted that we could rightly account for the roar that we hear and heed the signs of danger. And so the question comes to us then, if one of your most beloved people was heading down the river in the wrong direction, headed towards doom and death, ending, going over a waterfall, what would you do to get their attention? And the answer is everything you could, everything that you possibly could to alter their course. You would do everything that you could possibly do. Returning to the Lord requires us to turn. God must break us to stop us, to turn us completely in the other direction. Because friends, this is important. God doesn't love us that we might slightly veer a little bit left, that we might find him a little bit more attractive than our other lovers and other lovely things because God is not another lover. That God doesn't pursue us to join us as helpful passengers that encourage us towards our heart's desired destination because God is not a sidekick. God doesn't empower us to achieve our dreams and live our best life now because he's not a genie. He is the God of the universe. He must bring us to the end of ourselves because nothing less than turning back to him will do. He's not another lover. He's not a sidekick. And he's not a genie. He's the most high God of heaven, the triune God of the universe, the author of life, 
the creator and sustainer of it all. And he will have nothing less from us than to be the very love of our life, the joy of our hearts, and that we would glory in his grace and goodness to us. Hosea says, you have stumbled because of your iniquities. It is at the end of ourselves that we realize that we are culpable for the issues of our lives. And God sets us in a new direction that we turn from our folly and our way in the life that we once lived. And now we take responsibility for our sins. Uh, The word repentance is used to describe one who turns and confesses their sinfulness. In our return to God, Hosea says, repent. In verse two, he says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Cereal shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will not, no more, we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Right? So our natural tendency when we ha- get the premonition that we have wronged somebody, in our best self, we think of how we can make up for that. And so when I, you know, offend my wife, I might take her out to eat. I might uh, give her a little bit of lip service because I want I want quick forgiveness, or I might buy her flowers. We often think that we can buy someone's forgiveness. The truth is, is we adopt that same attitude with God. The Israelites believed that they could appease God with a few sacrifices and a bit of lip service. But as Hosea has already told them in Hosea 6, that God doesn't want mere sacrifice. God wants steadfast love. God isn't looking for transaction. God wants fidelity. And far too often, we give God the scraps of our life and we believe that that's good enough to please him. That, that we believe that God, we can throw him a little bit of church attendance, our tithe, and that will make God's happy and we can do whatever we want. Or we give him a little bit of lip service from time to time in public. But Hosea says here that we should take our words and we should beg God for forgiveness, that he would accept our meager offerings as good and that we would vow fidelity to him and nothing created on this earth, that our words and our actions would align with each other. They would align with each other, that we would confess our sins and that we would be faithful in turning from those sins. And so let's be honest, repentance has, it has a harsh tone to it. You know, I think sometimes we, we don't like that word repent. It, it seems like something that we might have to do once in our life. But our scripture actually elevates repentance as a lifelong process, which actually produces fruit and changes our hearts. Repentance is transformative. It's transformative because as we return to God, we see everything that we once passed by going in the wrong direction in a new light. Our past lives were consumed with ourselves Distracted, But now as we return to God, he illuminates with his light what we once missed. It brings to light all of our falling short. We are able to see our relationships in a new light. We're able to see our work in a new light. We're able to see our purpose in a new life. We're able to see ourselves in a new light. And we actively own and mourn the way that we once were. 
because we can see the destruction and bitterness that was created in our self-consumed life. Repentance transforms us because it constantly reminds us that God's love for us is without merit. Hosea says in verse 4, he says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God speaks here of sin as a disease. And he says that he and he alone can heal it. Not can heal it. Not might heal it. He says, I will, will heal it. Because as we turn to God and encounter God's light and love, we are shocked. Because as we turn and we look at our sin, we owe almost guarantee that what we most deserve is divine judgment, wrath, and rebuke, but we don't receive it. We are startled to realize that God has poured out all of his wrath and all of his judgment on his own son. He has turned away his anger. He has satisfied his perfect justice in his son. And we realize one of the most joyous truths in all of creation, that God has loved us freely. God has loved us freely, meaning it was never about what I did. It was never what I could say. It was never about what I could do. That God's love wasn't predicated on me, but on him. And he has willed it that he loves his children freely. And as we begin to look at our old life in repentance, we see God's good, gracious hand working in it. We see his grace. We see his faithfulness. We see his love moving in our lives. And it compels us. It allures us. It causes us to throw away our iniquities, to confess our sins, because we know this. I can't earn his love. I never could. We also remember that there is nothing on this earth that could ever do for me what the love of God does. God restores us. He restores us. In verse 5, it says, I will be like the dew to Israel. I will be like the dew to Israel. Upon their return in their repentance, God works to restore his people. What will his people find when they turn back to him? The scripture says, do. Do is symbolic. It's a metaphor in scripture that conveys God's tender mercies. That in our return to God, what we will find is not divine wrath, but tender mercy. He restores us. It says in verse 5 that he shall blossom like the lily. What's this? That God restores our beauty. He restores our beauty. Not, now, not in like you're going to grow hair again or get a six-pack abs. But he restores to us what is beautiful. It says he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. He restores our strength. In verse 6, he says he shoots, his shoots shall spread out. He grows our faith to be a blessing to others. His beauty shall be like the olives. Our true value is revealed and known. Olives are one of the most important crops in this time. They are valuable beyond valuable. He says, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Fragrance is delight. It's joy. That God restores our delight. He restores our joy. And in this, I love verse 7. That, shall, that they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. As we return, being transformed by repentance, restored by God's love and grace, he says, I want you to dwell beneath my shadow. It means that we find our rest in God. 
Jesus is the rest for our souls. All of our lives, we've been trying to flex and fight to appear more virtuous, more righteous, and more important than we really are. But what is true is that we are actually made and designed to rest in the joy and enjoy the one who actually is all those things. That we rest in God's presence, in his word, in his truth, in his faithfulness, in his justice and grace and mercy. We spend so much time as Christians thinking about and discussing what we need to do for the Lord or how can I come to know God, but our scripture has clearly laid out that the most fundamental of all is that we enjoy the God who holds us and that we rest in him. Because as we rest in him, we will not be anxious. As we rest in him, we will fear no evil. As we rest in him, we grow in meekness and humility. As we rest in him, God leads us to paths of righteousness for his own sake. King David says in Psalm 3, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. God sustains us in our rest. And what is the result of that rest? The rest of verse 7. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress, for from me comes your fruit. Hosea is saying that in our rest, God renews us. That in our repentance, God restores us and that we learn who we are, but more importantly, we learn who our God is. But it is in our rest that God renews us. He revives our purpose. He revives our character. He renews the work that he has for us. He makes us, it says, flourish and blossom. He makes us famous, not Instagram famous. He makes us famous in this. We're attractive to the world. That, because why? Because as we rest And God, we are no longer restlessly pursuing after other lovers, other pleasures, other things that we think will satisfy our souls. We have found it. We sit satisfied in the God of the universe who says that he is like an evergreen cypress, meaning he is undying and full, undying and full, and in him both the fruit that nourishes our soul and the fruit that bears witness to him in the world is found. Fruit meaning character here. He grows our fruit for our joy, but also he grows it in us to reveal himself to the world so that his goodness and his love would be reflected into the world that others would know him. And so verse nine, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Hosea's final word to us contends to us that the wisest people that will ever walk this earth will understand that God's mercy and faithfulness is an opportunity to repent and find restoration, to find rest and renewal for their souls, that we joyfully defer our ways to his because his ways are upright and good and that we would reflect that to the world, that God might be glorified and lifted high to our neighbors, to our families, 
to our cities, to our communities, to our nation, that they might come to know God and return to a God that has loved us so freely. And so this is the message of Hosea. It's about a people who are spiraling in sin, who are rejected and rebelled against him. They have pursued other lovers and other lovely things, and in that they have deceived themselves. But it reminds us that God is unlike us, that he is faithful and he is pure and he is holy and he is long-suffering in his people's waywardness. He is perfect in love and justice, yet he has never stopped pursuing his wayward people. God tears us, he bends us, he makes us stumble and fall. He frustrates us and creates resistance that we might be beaten, that in being defeated, we would accept his offer to return to him, that we might repent and rest and reflect, not as one transaction, but as a lifelong journey back to him. A lifelong journey back to the Father where we find restoration, renewal, and rest. And so four questions that as we leave the book of Hosea that I think that we should consider. Have I sensed God's directional altering grace? Have I felt God come to me in a way that that he is trying to alter my direction? Have I been beaten? Number two is where do I need to take words and say to him, where can I repent? Number three, am I resting in the God who loves me freely? Who restores and renews me? And number four, am I reflecting the ways of the Lord that are right? What a beautiful day today to meditate on such things but also to bask in the delight of a great God who has loved us freely, despite ourselves. And so as we close today, we're gonna take some time to worship. And so as I leave the stage, would you stand as a congregation and would you be reminded of how great our God is that you might find rest in him?